0: Earlier this week, my dad was telling me a story how when he was growing up in a small church in Georgia, that, you know, in those country churches, sometimes before they take up the offering, the pastor will call on a deacon or somebody else in the church to lead a prayer. And there was a man in that church whose last name was Shackelford, and so the pastor often would call on him and say, Brother Shackelford, would you lead the offertory prayer today? And he certainly would. And my dad said when he was... You know, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old. The thing that he remembers about Brother Shackelford's prayer was, at the end of the prayer, he would always say, "Now, God, keep us safe until we stand before you at the great white throne judgment." Of course, when at that age, he didn't really know what that meant or understand that, but. Now, he certainly does, and many of us do, and some of you might not be familiar with the great white throne judgment, but let me say about Brother Shackelford, he was undoubtedly a good man who had a pure heart, but that was a bad prayer, because no one wants to stand before God at the great white throne judgment, and I think in about 30 minutes from now, we'll understand better why that is a true statement. And so, we are going to be thinking this morning about the great white throne judgment. Maybe that's something you're familiar with. For many here today, it's probably something you've never even heard of because it's not something that is talked about very much in settings like this. And yet, as we're working our way through the book of Revelation, we have come to the passage this morning where we're dealing with the great white throne judgment. And so, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you would open them, please, to the book of Revelation. If you forgot your Bible at home today, that's okay. There's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Revelation chapter number 20, and beginning in verse number 11, we're going to read about a vision that the apostle John had. That's what this whole book is about. It's about a vision that John had of future events. And one of those future events is known as the Great White Throne Judgment. So Revelation chapter 20, let's begin in verse number 11. And if you have found that 11th verse, would you let it be known by saying amen today so I can know that we're all together. Okay, that was a really weak amen, but we'll hope it gets better as it goes. Revelation 20, verse number 11, then I saw a great white throne, they are the words, that we're focusing on this morning. That word great tells us that it is awesome. The word white tells us that it is pure. And the word throne tells us that it is a judgment. And so that's what it is. It is an awesome, pure judgment. And John said, and I saw him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, verse 15 is a very serious verse. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so today we're thinking about the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, it's interesting, earlier this week when I was beginning this sermon, I came up with six questions that I thought we could build this study around, and I thought if we can answer those six questions, then at the end of it, we'll have a pretty good idea of what the Great White Throne Judgment is. But as the week went on and I continued to think about this sermon, I thought, you know, I really think that I would be wise today just to deal with four of those questions and for us to come back next Sunday and think about questions questions 5 and 6. And so today, we're just going to be dealing with the first four questions. But I think by asking these questions, it helps us understand what is the great white throne judgment. So question number one is, when will this judgment take place? When is it going to happen? Well, it's going to happen after the millennium. Now, if you were here last week and even the week before that, you know that we've been studying about a period of time that will one day happen on the earth after the second coming of Jesus, after he comes back at the battle of Armageddon. We did three sermons on the battle of Armageddon. Jesus will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The Latin word there is millennium, but it doesn't mean million. It means It means a thousand years. And for for a thousand years, there will be peace on the earth. There will be no war. There will be no conflict. There will be no strife. We read that during that thousand-year period, the wolf will lay down with the lamb. Children will play with snakes. Uh, Water will come out from underneath the temple in Jerusalem, flowing into the Dead Sea, bringing life to that dead body of water. We read that during the millennium in the desert that is in southern Israel today, Uh, The desert will blossom like a rose. It's going to be an unbelievable time. During those thousand years, there are two reasons that's going to be so great. Number one, Jesus is on the earth in charge, and he's ruling and reigning. But also, during these thousand years, Satan will be in a bottomless pit. He will be in a place of punishment known as the abyss or the shaft, and for a thousand years, he will be there. We saw last week that at the end of those thousand years, Satan will come out of, he will be brought out of the bottomless pit, and he will go to deceive people who are living on the earth at that time. Now, As we saw last week, the people he will deceive will be people that were born during the millennium or who will be born during the millennium, who even though outwardly they submit to Christ's reign on the earth and they're not breaking his laws, but in their heart they've never been changed, they've never been saved, they've never been born again. And so after Satan comes out of that bottomless pit, he will deceive them. But after a brief time of deception, God will pronounce a final judgment on Satan. And look in verse 10 because here we find how Satan's life as we know it ends. Now this is Lucifer, once an angel in heaven who rebelled against God, who was cast out of heaven. There we have him in the Garden of Eden when he emerged on the stage of human history, deceiving Adam and Eve. He has wreaked havoc through the centuries He goes about, the Bible says, like a roaring lion today, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus called him a thief. He said the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so every war, every conflict, every disease, every problem, every heartache can be traced back directly or indirectly to Satan. And in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, we read his fate. Notice what it says, the devil who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, that's a description of hell, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so at this point in the future, Satan will go to hell and he will be there forever. Immediately after he goes to hell, the great white throne judgment happens. Notice in verse 10, the devil goes to hell. In verse 11, we're reading about the great... White Throne Judgment. So in answer to question one, when will it happen? After the millennium, after the devil goes to hell. Now question number two is interesting to me. Maybe you've never thought about it or maybe you have, but where will this judgment take place? Now to be honest with you, I've always kind of imagined that the Great White Throne Judgment would take place in heaven. Because after all, that's where God's throne is today, right? God is seated on His throne in heaven. Jesus Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. And so, I guess in my mind, I had just always imagined that the great white throne judgment would take place in heaven. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've read about it, the more I've learned about it, we, we discover that the great white throne judgment cannot take place. It will not take place in heaven because remember, at the great white throne judgment, the people being judged are unsaved people. And so it would make no sense for unsaved people to go to heaven to be judged. Unsaved people are not going to go to heaven for any reason. And so the judgment cannot and will not take place in heaven, and so we're left to ask, well, where will it be? Well, you would say, I would naturally say, well, if it can't be on heaven, it must be on earth. And maybe it will take place on earth, but it all depends by what John meant in verse number 11 by a phrase he made. Look at it again. He said, I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Now, if John literally meant that when the great white throne judgment takes place, that it is so awesome, so holy, so uh, astounding that literally heaven and earth are going to fade away and pass away and be gone from the scene during this judgment. If he meant that literally, then the judgment couldn't take place on earth because earth will have faded away. But if he meant that in a, you know, if he's using hyperbole here, if he's making an exaggeration to u- using exaggeration to make a point, then maybe the judgment will take place on earth. So the answer to this question, where will it take place? The Bible is not clear. It will either be on the earth, or as some have said, if heaven and earth have literally passed away, it will be outside the universe. It will be someplace where we don't even know where it is. But in somewhere in God's great world, this judgment will Take place, but we don't know for sure where it will happen. Now, question number three, who will be the judge? Look back again at verse number 11. This verse is loaded. He said, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Now, the question is, who is the him? Who is the person seated on the great white throne? Well, most of us would say this is God. And by that, we would mean this is God the Father. Again, we think of God the Father, and He is today, seated on the great throne in heaven. But the Him being referred to here is not God the Father. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will be the one seated on the great white throne, and he'll be uh, making all judgments. Let me give you a verse. Don't take my word for that, but let me give you a verse. In John chapter 5, in verse 22, Jesus is speaking, and Jesus said, "...for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son." And so at the great white throne judgment Jesus is judging and he's judging those who have never been saved and it makes sense that Jesus would judge because he is judging those who have rejected him as Lord and Savior but again the verse in John 5:22 makes it incredibly clear for the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son all future judgment will be done by Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ those of us who have been saved immediately after the rapture we will appear before Christ he will judge us by our lives by our works it has nothing to do with sin it will be a judgment to reward us if we have been found faithful Jesus will do that A thousand years later, after the millennium, at the great white throne, here sits Jesus, and now he's judging unsaved people people. And in this judgment, one of the things he will be doing is determining the degree of punishment in hell. Just like there are degrees of rewards in heaven, there will be degrees of punishment in hell. And we're going to get into that next week. That's why I wanted to wait. But nonetheless, the point here is that Jesus Christ will be the judge. Now, question number four, who will be there? Who will he be judging? Now, it won't be us. It won't be those of us who have been saved because that's not, uh, we're not going to be judged for our sins. Jesus was judged for our sins. Let me give you another verse. I want to read it to you, but just jot it down. In John chapter 5 and in verse number 24, listen to what Jesus said. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life and so for those of us who were saved we have passed from death into life we will not come into judgment talking about the great white throne judgment talking about judgment for sins because our sins were judged when Jesus died on the cross remember this Every sin that has ever been committed by any person in any age must be judged. And that sin, those sins, will either be judged and punished by Jesus' death on the cross, or if people reject that, they will have to pay for their own sins in an eternity in hell. It's just that simple. But every sin must be punished. And so when we think about who will be there, the short answer to that question is, unsaved people will be there. Now look in verse number 12. John is having this vision. He has described this throne. We know that it is Jesus seated on this throne. It is an awesome scene. But in verse 12, he's telling us now who it is that will be judged. He said, "And I saw the dead talking about the spiritually dead." Those of us who are saved, we're alive in Christ. <laughs> those of us who have, those those people who have never been saved, God describes them in the Bible as dead. They're spiritually dead. They're alive physically, but they're dead men walking. They're dead women walking. They're spiritual. They have no spiritual life. And he said, I saw the dead, small and great. That is the big shot and the little shot, the known and the unknown, the person who's made a name for himself and the person who has never been heard of. Listen how one writer describes this. Both the small and the great of this life as men view other men will be there. The banker and the beggar, the prince and the pauper, the statesman, the scientist, the lawyer, the doctor, the professor, the author, the mechanic, the housewife, the bricklayer, the farmer, and the criminal. In this life, men have station, by that he means position and rank, but before Christ, there will be no respect of persons. God is no respecter of persons. God is not impressed by somebody's position or rank. Although they, they will stand there in mass, they will be judged individually. And so it is a sea of humanity at this judgment, and yet each will be judged individually for rejecting Christ and also for how they have lived their life. The dead refers to unsaved people, spiritually dead. Now remember, when an unsaved person dies, the grave has the body, but a place called Hades has the soul. We've talked about that before. When a Christian dies, if I drop dead right now, what's going to happen to me? Well, my body's going to fall on this platform, And it's gonna freak everybody out, right? It's gonna scare you to death if that happens right now. But if that should happen, I hope it doesn't. Lord, please don't let it happen right now. But if it should happen, don't worry about me because before my body hits the ground, my soul will be safe in the arms of God. I'll be in heaven, I'll be in paradise, absent from the body present with the Lord. But how about an unsaved person? What happens when an unsaved person dies? Well, their body goes to the grave, but their soul goes immediately to a place called Hades. We learn this in Luke chapter 16. Hades is not hell. It is like a pre-hell. It is the hell people go to before they go to the permanent and the final hell. It is like a state penitentiary. It is like the county jail, whereas hell is like the state penitentiary. It is a place of punishment and agony. But at this great white throne judgment, what will happen is all the people who are unsaved, whose souls are in Hades and whose bodies are in the grave, their bodies will be resurrected and those resurrected bodies will be reunited with those souls that will be brought up from Hades just like at the rapture of the church, our bodies will be resurrected, brought out of the grave. If we're living at the time of the rapture, our bodies will be transformed into the image of Jesus. We'll get our resurrected body at that moment. But here, after the millennium, unsaved people, their bodies will come up out of the grave, their souls will be brought out of Hades, their souls and their bodies will be reunited, and in that reunited body, they will stand, in their resurrected body even, they will stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. So it is an awesome awesome scene. That resurrection will not take place until after the millennium is over. Now, the question is, who will be here? And I've already given you the short answer, unsaved people will be there. But it's interesting, years ago, I heard one of my favorite pastors preaching on this subject, the great white throne judgment, and he started describing unsaved people. And he did something that I thought was very interesting. He put unsaved people into five different categories. And the pastor I was listening to was a man named Adrian Rogers, who's one of the greatest preachers who has ever lived, greatly impacted my life. He went to heaven in 2005. He's still on the radio every day preaching. He's like Abel, though he's dead, he's still speaking. And he's, he's still preaching good sermons, even though he's been in heaven a long time now. But he categorized... Five different groups of unsaved people. And what he said was so good that I want to take Adrian Rogers' categories and use them today to help, you to un- help us to understand that while unsaved people have the fact that they're unsaved in common... They have other things that are actually quite different. So let me give you five categories of unsaved people. You still listen? Say amen. Now I want to make sure you're with me right here. Five categories of unsaved people. Category number one is what he called out-and-out sinners. That is people who certainly don't believe in God. They mock God. They take Christ's name in vain. They, they, they sin out in the open. Now all of us are sinners, Saved and unsaved. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All do sin and fall short of the glory of God. But for those of us who are saved, we're embarrassed by our sins. I'm ashamed of my sins. I don't come out here on Sunday and say, hey, everybody, let me tell you everything I did wrong last week. That would be an embarrassment. That would would shame and embarrass me. And as Christians, we are embarrassed by our sins. We are to confess our sins as publicly as we commit our sins, but no less or no more than that. But this group of out-and-out sinners, what he meant by that was, these are people who don't try to hide their sins. They just flaunt their sins. This is who I am. This is how I live. Nobody can stop me. Well, they have mocked God. They have mocked the church. They have mocked the Bible. And at this judgment, these people who all their lives believed that there was no God will discover that they were wrong. They thought they would never have to answer to anybody. At this judgment, they will discover that they indeed do. They have to answer to God. Out and out sinners. Category number two, self-righteous people. This is just the opposite of the out-and-out sinner. Self-righteous people are people we would look at, and we would say, man, that is a good person. That is a moral person. That is a kind person. These are nice people. They have nice jobs. They live in nice homes. They're good to their families. They pay their taxes. They're honest people. And yet, they have never been saved. And they have failed to understand this. They have failed to understand that nobody is so good that he doesn't need to be saved. And so they think that one day in their minds, they just think, well, you know, God would never send somebody like me to hell. Hell is for the out-and-out sinners. But these self-righteous people are the opposite. They live pure lives. They don't commit immorality. They, don't do, they try to live good lives. And yet, at the final judgment, they'll be there Because they have rejected Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say? By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. So there's nobody so good that he doesn't need to be saved. There's nobody so bad that he can't be saved. But there's nobody so good that he doesn't need to be saved. Listen to how a man named Erwin Lutzer, who's a godly pastor and preacher, described this group. He said, this multitude is diverse in its religions. We see Buddhists. Muslims, Hindus, Protestants, Catholics. We see those who believed in one God and those who believed in many gods. We see those who refused to believe in any God at all. We see those who believed in meditation as a means of salvation. And those who believe that doing good deeds was the path to eternal life. That is the self-righteous. I'm going to get to heaven by doing good things. Well, they're wrong. Nobody goes to heaven that way. We see the moral and the immoral. Now, listen to this. We see the priest as well as the minister, the nun as well as the missionary. Now, when we think about people who will be at the great white throne judgment Yes, we think about out-and-out sinners. We think about people who rejected Jesus Christ, but we don't think about priests. We don't think about nuns. We don't think about ministers. We don't think about missionaries. How could God send a nun to hell? Here's a lady who's devoted her whole life to the service of God. How could God send a priest to hell? Here's a man who has refuse marriage in his service to God. You talk about devotion. How could God send a priest to hell? A missionary? Somebody who has left his home, left her family? left everything that was secure to go halfway around the world to share the gospel. How could God send a missionary or a minister to hell? And the answer to that is nobody's going to heaven because they were a priest or a nun or a minister or a missionary. You don't go to heaven by serving God. You go to heaven by knowing God personally through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, if a nun is a nun thinking she's going to heaven through her nunnery, or a priest is a priest thinking he's going to heaven heaven through his priesthood, if a minister who's a minister thinks he's going to heaven because of his ministry or a missionary through the mission field, they're wrong. You go to heaven not by serving God, but by having God, Jesus Christ, in your heart, forgiving your sins as personal Lord and as personal Savior. And so, self-righteous people, this is a serious thought. I mean, you have to ask yourself today, what am I banking on? What am I hoping on? What am I, or hoping in, what am I depending on to get me to heaven? Is it my life or is it the life, death, and burial burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? I can tell you this. I would not trust the best five minutes I ever lived to get me to heaven because me at my... Isaiah 64 4. Our righteousnesses are like filthy rags to God. And so we can't trust in ourselves, no matter how good we might be. The third category of people who will be at this judgment, the unsaved, will be procrastinators. And that's how Adrian described them. Proverbs 27 1. Listen to this verse. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. We know in Scripture, life is like a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's like a passing shadow. It's the grass. Here it comes up. It's green. And now it has died off. And we know from experience. I think of the people in our church who have died during this pandemic. I think of they were here, the pandemic struck. And since that's happened, they have, many of them. we've had many of our members die And I'm thinking of one lady wasn't a member here, but she uh, was very close to somebody who is a member here, and she died of COVID-19. And so life is uncertain. But the procrastinators, these are people who believed in God or who will believe in God or who have believed in God, people who believed Jesus died on that cross, people who knew they needed to be saved, people who intended to be saved people who were never going to try to go to heaven by their own goodness and yet they put it off and they said I'll do it next week I'll do it next service I'll do it down the road I'm going to get saved I intend to get saved but I'm not going to get saved right now and at the final judgment there they'll be with the out and out sinners and with the self-righteous people and they'll be thinking but I already believed all this about God in the Bible I believed about Jesus I knew I was a sinner I knew I needed Christ and yet I put it off And now it is too late. Procrastinators will be at this judgment. Category number four, unsaved church members. Billy Graham said that he estimated that 50% of church members are unsaved. That's a scary thought. In my notes, I've written it this way. These are religious people, but they're lost. They're depending on church membership. They're trusting in their baptism. And they think because they belong to a church or they were sprinkled at some church or immersed at somewhere else, that because of that baptism, that they're going to go to heaven and be with God. And yet they are unsaved, even though they're church members. And I think most of us know this, but I want to just say this as clearly as I can today. Joining a church doesn't make you a Christian. Joining a church makes you a member of a church. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized makes you wet. That's the only thing. And it's an act of obedience and it's public and we're supposed to do it. I'm not minimizing baptism. But I'm saying, if a person gets up in that baptistry or any baptistry, if they go down unsaved, they're coming up unsaved. There's nothing in that water that's going to wash anybody's sins away. Listen to what Jesus said as he came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What is God's will? That we repent of our sins, that we receive Christ as Savior. Listen to this. Many will say to me, in that day, what day? This day, the great white throne judgment. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Lord, haven't we done all these things? We were at church. We were at visitation. We were serving you. We were visiting hospitals. We were casting out demons. We were praying over people in the name of Jesus. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The four most chilling words in the English language are these words from the lips of Jesus I never knew you. Notice he didn't say, I used to know you. He didn't say, You had it and lost it. He said, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. You were all about the church and you were all about service and you were all about mission projects and you were all about doing good to people and all of that had its place, but you bypassed first base. You never got saved. You never received me. I never knew you. Those those words used to scare me to death. And I thought, what if God would ever say to me, I never knew you. And then I came across a verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible now. Nahum chapter one in verse seven. It's a tremendous verse. Three phrases. The Lord is good. You believe that? Say amen. A stronghold in the day of trouble. You believe that? Say amen. Listen to phrase three. And he knows those who trust in him. And when I read that verse, he knows those who trust in him. I said, I do trust in Christ. I do trust in Jesus. And he said, he knows those who trust in him. So if I trust Christ and I do, he knows me. And if Jesus knows me, he can never say, I never knew you. How could you tell a person you currently know that you never knew them? And so if you trust Christ, he knows you. But these people never trusted Christ. Those who he knows those who trust in him, but those who don't trust in him, he doesn't know them. They don't have any personal relationship, and so they're unsaved church members. And then lastly, they're those who have never heard the gospel. Those who've never heard the gospel. We sometimes wonder, what about those people in Africa who don't have a church? They don't have a Bible. They've never heard a sermon. They've never heard the name Jesus. They don't even know the name God. What about them when they die? Will they go to heaven or hell, or will they just you know, disappear out there somewhere. What happens to people who've never heard the gospel? Well, the Bible speaks to it. Listen to this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even, even His eternal power in Godhead. Listen to this. So that they are without excuse. That person on the backside of the jungle in Africa today who's never heard a sermon, never heard the name Jesus... No, that's true. They've never heard about Jesus. They don't know about the cross. But when they woke up this morning and looked up in the sky, they saw a sky, they saw clouds, and they saw a sun. And with that general revelation, they had a decision that they had to make. And the decision was, did all that just get there by itself, or is there somebody who made it? They don't even know the name God. So God says they're without excuse. In, the, in, in God's creation, he, this is general revelation. Now, general revelation can't save anybody, but the Bible teaches a principle that if a person responds to the light that he has, that God will get that person more light. And so that person in Africa today looks up at that sky this morning, so that sky tonight, sees the moon, sees the stars, and they say, I don't know who he is. I don't know where he lives. I don't know his name, but I believe somebody made all of this. The Bible teaches that one way or another, through a missionary, through a preacher, through a track, through a Bible dropped out of an airplane, somehow God will get that person more light. If you respond to the light you have, God will get you more light. Friend, if we didn't believe that, if you believe that people who've never heard the name Jesus, when they die, they're just going to go to heaven, I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to shut all the churches down and quit exposing people to truth. We ought to stop sending out missionaries because now you're making people accountable because you're telling them about Jesus. See, the fact that we have church, the fact that we send missionaries, what are we saying? We're saying we believe that in order for a person to be saved, they have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that relationship may be progressive beginning with those who've never heard because they have to first respond to the light they have. Now, we're not going to look it up today, but in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus taught another principle about this. And here's how it applies to this point. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom little is given, little is required. And if a person has the full knowledge of Jesus Christ and rejects Jesus, their punishment in hell will be greater. But if a person does not know as much, hasn't had the opportunities like you're having today in a beautiful church listening to the Bible being preached. They're not having this opportunity, and yet they have rejected Christ through uh, general revelation, and so they're unsaved. Jesus says that person in hell will not be punished as much as the person who had more knowledge. So again, we'll see it next week. Just their degrees of reward in heaven, their degrees of punishment in hell. Now, you're still listening? Say amen. Aren't you glad I cut off the last two points this morning? We'd be here all day. So I wanted to stop right here as we've thought about these five categories. Out and out sinners, self-righteous people, procrastinators, unsaved church members, And those who have never heard the gospel will one day appear at the great white throne judgment. Imagine this in your mind. At this judgment, there's a judge, but there's no jury. There are defendants, but there's no defense. There's a verdict, but there's no appeal. There's a sentence, but that sentence has no end. You say, John... Do you ever worry that maybe you'll end up at the great white throne judgment? After all, it's for sinners, and we've all sinned. You're not going to be in heaven just because you're a minister or a preacher. Do you ever worry or wonder that you might appear at the great white throne judgment? I can tell you this in answer to that question. I used to. All those years that I didn't have the full assurance of my salvation, this was what ate my lunch worrying will I be at the great white throne judgment and worse than that will I eventually end up in hell that's a that's a paralyzing fear but if you ask me today John do you worry about appearing at the great white throne judgment my answer to that question is no I don't and I'll tell you why I have settled my case out of court. I have pled guilty. And I have said to God, guilty as charged. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus has said to me, whoever believes on Christ shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Do I worry about appearing at the great white throne judgment? No, I don't. Because I've settled out of court. And I'm saying to you today, if you don't have the full assurance of your salvation, this is serious business. And I want to give you an opportunity right now to settle out of court and to make your peace with God. With heads bowed and eyes closed all over this room, those watching online, in the privacy of your home, I'm going to lead you in a prayer today. We call it the sinner's prayer because you have to admit that you're a sinner in order to be saved. As my dad mentioned a moment ago, in the first service, there were eight or nine people who prayed this prayer and then stood confessing their faith in Jesus. And in my heart of hearts, I believe that in this service, somebody is going to be saved. Maybe, hopefully several Somebody's are going to be saved. I can say this. It, this, may, this may be the, ex, the exception. But in my preaching career, in my preaching ministry, I cannot ever recall preaching a sermon On the great white throne judgment where somebody did not get saved. And we saw it this morning and I believe we're going to see it again. Pray this prayer if you want to know for sure that your sins are forgiven. Say this. Say, dear Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. Tell him that. I trust you, Jesus, to save me and to keep me from the great white throne and to keep me out of hell and to deliver me to heaven, God. I trust you. I plead guilty, God, to the charges against me. I have sinned. I have fallen short. And today, God, I have no alibi. I have no excuse. I have no defense. I have no justification. God, today, I throw myself on your mercy. And I want to settle this case out of court. Forgive me, Jesus.